Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Gregory Melville and Susan Fox and Kathleen Bromage. When you have anxiety or chronic depression, your mind is constantly going. And I tried opiates and realized that my brain was just quiet for a little bit. That's the voice of Abby. She's one of thousands of New Englanders who've struggled with addiction. She and others are sharing their stories as part of a writing project and podcast. It's meant to shine a light on the problem and the ways out. And we begin to understand and show compassion toward people with substance use disorder, and that's when we can begin to treat it. This week on Next from the New England News Collaborative, a first-person account of addiction and recovery. We'll also dig into the ever-evolving, always controversial plan to get hydropower from Quebec to Massachusetts. Plus, in two towns, historic buildings in disrepair are forcing residents to consider their history. We need to think about what good development looks like. And good development, in my mind, includes saving old buildings and integrating them into the new. It's Next. Next is produced at Connecticut Public Radio and is powered by the New England News Collaborative, eight public media companies coming together to tell the story of a changing region with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm John Dankoski. Thanks for joining us. We're going to start this week's show by taking you on a long journey. It's a journey that has a pretty noble goal at the end, a future where a fast-growing state is able to power itself without burning as many fossil fuels. It's a journey that starts a long way from here, up in frigid Quebec, where a gigantic decades-old project that dammed rivers and forced Native people off their lands has become a source of provincial pride and a lot of power. How much power? Well, Hannah McCarthy and Sam Evans-Brown from the podcast Outside In, they told us when they went there for their series, Powerline. This is the sound of standing underneath a turbine inside the Central Robert Bourassa, a massive dam complex that is way up in the middle of Quebec. This facility is one of the biggest in the world. Together, its two powerhouses have 22 of these turbines, and they put out more power than six nuclear reactors. So if one of these can power a city, um, then... How much does the whole facility, you said it's... Oh, that way, uh, this is the equivalent of, uh, of a town of uh, close to 1.6 million people. Power-hungry Massachusetts saw Hydro-Quebec's big dams as a zero-carbon answer to their prayers. We believe through the solicitation and procurement of long-term contracts for both hydropower and offshore wind power, Massachusetts and New England can remain a national leader and clean and renewable energy production. That's Governor Charlie Baker, who solicited bids for all kinds of projects to bring about 1,200 megawatts of renewable energy to the Commonwealth. In January of 2018, Massachusetts announced that it picked the Northern Pass Transmission Line, a project of giant utility Eversource, to deliver a big chunk of that power in through New Hampshire. Northern Pass was controversial, though, from the start. And only a week after Massachusetts' announcement, New Hampshire's Site Evaluation Committee denied the final permit for the project. The state's governor, Chris Sununu, was not happy, as he told radio station WTSN. And when you look at what the factors were that they considered in taking that vote, 
they they just couldn't be more wrong. They couldn't be more wrong. I mean, this was clearly a, a pre-staged decision, I think. So Massachusetts went to Plan B, a different transmission line from Quebec, this one cutting through the state of Maine, Central Maine Power's New England Energy Connect. Now, a year later, this project, while also controversial, is getting more and more support, including from Maine's new governor, Janet Mills. The transmission line project, substantially enhanced by this stipulation, now is poised to benefit Maine people, to inject millions into our economy, to create jobs, to fund electric vehicles, to reduce electricity costs, to expand broadband, and substantially reduce our carbon footprint. So what about these two projects led to such different outcomes? And what does it mean for the energy mix for our entire region? We called up two reporters who've been covering these issues very closely, New Hampshire Public Radio's Annie Ropeek and Maine Public Radio's Fred Bever. Annie started by describing the Northern Pass project. This is a 192-mile transmission line. You know, those are the tall towers, the kind of the biggest scale power line that you see. Uh, It would have been partly buried, gone down through the White Mountains of New Hampshire from Canada, and then emerged into central New Hampshire, where the power would have been distributed down into southern New England. It had a price tag of $1.6 billion. And and I should note that the Northern Pass Project also predated that Massachusetts state law as well. So that was just sort of a bonus for them as they had that new funding opportunity that if – you know, this project that was already in the works got picked by Massachusetts. It would help them recoup some of its costs more quickly. And all they had to do was get their final building permit from the state of New Hampshire. So you've got this huge utility that wants to sell power to Massachusetts residents. You've got the support of Massachusetts state government. But then it fell through. What happened? Yeah, so it was quite dramatic. I mean, the Massachusetts decision where they picked Northern Pass came out. I was looking back at my old stories. It feels like a long time ago. January 25th, and then by, I think, February 1st, the State Site Evaluation Committee, which is this board of different state departments and you know representatives of different stakeholder groups who is in charge of approving big energy projects, they denied Northern Pass on around February 1st. And they'd only been in deliberations for a few days. And again, this came after literally years of hearings leading up to these deliberations. They had scheduled a few weeks of deliberations. So it was a huge surprise when on, I think, day three, they said, we don't believe this project can pass muster. We're ready to vote it down right now. And they did. And so basically the site evaluation committee has some criteria that are laid out in our state law that they are judging all of these projects against, whether it's, you know, a relatively small solar project that just just makes the cut of being considered large scale or something really enormous and transformative like Northern Pass. The projects have to be financially sound. They had agreed that Northern Pass was. And then they have to meet these other sort of tests of their impact. So they can't have too big of an effect on the environment or tourism or aesthetics along their route. They must be found to be in the service of the public good, which is this kind of subjective criterion. And then the last one is that they cannot upset orderly development in the region. And that was the one ultimately that sunk Northern Pass. That was the one that site evaluators decided that there was no way that they were going to find that the project could meet that test. And so they didn't even talk about the other two. And they voted unanimously to reject the project, which has now set off this ongoing appeals process that we're still in the middle of right now. So we'll get back to Northern Pass in a moment. But Fred, I'll turn to you. Once Northern Pass falls apart, this is an opportunity for the CMP project that would go through Maine to be resuscitated. So 
Tell us about that. What was the process by which Massachusetts decided to go with CMP as Plan B? Well, so Massachusetts basically took a new look at all of the bids it had, and one and done was clearly something that the Massachusetts regulators were interested in, and Massachusetts Governor Charlie Baker. And CMP was that kind of project, and it was about $600 million cheaper for Massachusetts than the Northern Pass project. So cost, I think, was the big deal. CMP had been laying the groundwork for getting its permits. It was pretty canny about that. It's done this kind of project before, and it's, unlike the other bidders, really transmission-focused. So the big factor, cost, obviously they'd done some of the groundwork in advance, something that maybe Northern Pass hadn't done. Maybe you can describe, though, the project itself, Fred, if Northern Pass was going to cut through the White Mountains and other sensitive environmental areas, and that's one of the concerns people had. What does it look like coming through Maine? So it's the the entire corridor is about 141 miles from the Canadian border down to Lewiston, Maine, where there's a big interconnection into the regional grid. And most of that requires upgrades, taller towers, more robust lines for the high voltage DC current that would be coming from Canada into the regional grid. But the most controversial part is about 53 miles of new quarter going through forested territory in western Maine, in its mountains, across some of its rivers. And that's been where a lot of the the controversy has focused on whether the trade-off between cutting through the woods there is worth it compared to whatever Maine's going to get out of this project. One of the problems that dogged Northern Pass, Fred, was that it didn't have some of the necessary permits in place, that it was still waiting for some of that. And as it got started, it it led to perhaps its demise. What did Maine have already in place to allow this project to get started a little bit more quickly? Well, one thing is is that while it's still in the permitting process now and always needed certain permits, Central Maine Power had secured the entire corridor that it needed. Uh, Of course, it already had the existing parts of the corridor, but it had also secured either ownership or easements across a particular route. They had also started negotiating with various towns, which would get some property tax benefit out of the project to get their support for the project from their local governments. And in addition, none of this is on public land. A good deal, and Annie, you can help me with this, a good deal of the Northern Pass project was actually on national forest land. So there isn't the same sort of public resource and public interaction that there was at Northern Pass. Yeah, that's true. I mean, Northern Pass had to go through a number of really high-profile court battles to try to secure some of the land that they needed. So they had all their land lined up, but it hadn't been sort of automatically available to them. They had to negotiate with a lot of environmental groups with the National Forest to get some of the corridor that they needed. But the rest of it was an existing rights-of-way, and that's something they really pushed a lot that, you know, we're not going to have to, like, blaze any new trails for this thing, but Really, that was only because they, you know, had to sort of go through the motions of of securing the corridor way ahead of time, which, you know, brought them, they felt into a position where they were all ready to go. And it's interesting that the opposite was true for CMP, that they were sort of felt okay about their state approvals, but they still had some of those little details to be worked out or not so small details, depending on who you ask, whereas Northern Pass, one thing that got them in trouble is they may have treated that site evaluation committee approval Not as a given, but as, you know, we've made it this far, we can make it over this hump. You know, we feel that the project meets all these tests of code and all we have to do is is talk through it. And and that turned out not to be the case. 
A key part of any project like this, if you're going to take a power line through one state, ostensibly to get power to customers in a completely different state, is the residents of that state, New Hampshire or Maine, probably have to get something out of it. So, Annie, I'll, I'll go to you first. What were New Hampshire residents told they'll get if Northern Pass cuts through the White Mountains and goes all the way down to Massachusetts? So one thing they were told is that they were not going to have to foot the bill for this alone, that, you know, we all share in the power here and we share in those costs. And New Hampshireites were not going to have to worry about paying to bring power to Massachusetts in theory. There also were certain economic development funds that were going to be made available as part of the project. Eversource was calling one of those the Forward New Hampshire Fund, which was for $200 million. And a lot of that was going to support economic development in the sort of more depressed rural parts of our North Country around the White Mountains, some of those towns that have suffered from the closure of, of certain paper mills and forestry sectors and, and you know, that rely a lot on ski tourism and White Mountains revenues. And, and then they also were going to make some upgrades to utility infrastructure in the North Country to, again, help bring better service and, and economic opportunities to these towns. But, you know, there were not in my view, and Fred, you can correct me here, but it doesn't seem like there were so many kind of really large-scale statewide initiative kind of incentives besides just like doling out millions of dollars in economic development funds. But CMP has quite a bit more of a range of incentives is my impression. And I think that's something that sets the two apart. One important, really important difference between the incentives package that Northern Pass offered and Eversource offered versus what Central Maine Power is offering now is that Central Maine Power didn't offer a package at first. Nothing mm. at all. Nothing above and beyond the project itself and the purported benefits that that would bring. So that was one reason that probably that CMP could make its offer to Massachusetts at $600 million less than Northern Pass was because it didn't have to dole out benefits, at least in its, in, as far as the bid process was concerned. But they did early on make a guarantee that Mainers, businesses and residents would never be on the hook for any of the costs of building this new transmission line. In addition, it would enjoy the benefits of lower energy prices throughout New England because of this pulse of clean energy basically subsidized by Massachusetts residents. After then-candidate for Governor Janet Mills said, ah, I'm not so sure about this project. This is during the campaign. I don't think I could support it as it is now. I really want them to bring some more to the table. Uh, that's a paraphrase, but that's the message she sent. So they did once she got elected. And that includes more than $100 million in rate assistance to hold the line on energy costs for main ratepayers specifically, maybe worth about a buck fifty a month on your average residential bill. For the big businesses, though, that support this project, then the big energy users like paper mills, significantly more. One reason they've signed on. They're uh, putting in some money for extra money for rate relief for low-income customers. They got $15 million for heat pumps, $15 million for electric vehicle charging stations. They've got money for to subsidize the purchase of electric vehicles, $5 million for economic developments in host communities. So there's a sort of banquet of efforts. So then, Annie, what happens next with that project? As you say, it predates this request for power from Massachusetts, all of New England, 
these states are growing, they need more energy, and they're going to want more than maybe just 10% of their energy to be renewable or coming from hydro sources. Is there still life left in a Northern Pass project? It really remains to be seen. You know, we're waiting to see what the Supreme Court does with it. They may issue kind of a narrow ruling that's really more about the SEC's process than about whether Northern Pass is a good project or not. I actually think that's somewhat likely. It's not really the Supreme Court's job to approve this project. They're looking more at whether this violated SEC rules or whether SEC rules need to be clarified in some way to prevent this kind of chaos in the future. But, you know, one potential outcome is that the Supreme Court says, yes, according to the letter of the site evaluation committee law, you didn't do your due diligence and you need to do it again. You need to reconsider the project and do it in this correct way. And that could potentially lead to a different outcome for Northern Pass. Eversource is certainly acting as though Northern Pass still has life left in it. And in fact, when I talked shortly after Massachusetts dumped the project to former Eversource spokesman Martin Murray, you know, he was intimating that Massachusetts was not, you know, the only player in the game. Uh, Massachusetts is a large player in this game, but it's one of six New England states. And what we're seeing is a growing demand and a recognition that this sort of energy is uh, desired. So I think that Eversource would like to develop Northern Pass, whether or not they have a obvious immediate single customer to buy the power like Massachusetts would have been. This is a capital project. I mean, Eversource can do this if they can get the approvals for it. They don't need a specific buyer. They can just sell the power straight into the regional grid and pass the costs on to ratepayers potentially or, you know, do it through some other means. And so... I think it'll be really interesting to see what comes out of the state Supreme Court. And I think Eversource is going to do all they can to try to revive this project in some way. Although I think that there probably are not so many options for them to do that. But, you know, they're going to they're going to do what they can for sure, because they've invested millions of dollars into this campaign so far. And so they're not going to let it go easy. I think they wouldn't mind if the CMP project here in Maine went away. Oh, sure. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine if they switched back to Northern Pass? I'd rather not. Uh <laughs> One thing I do want to mention in all of this, I've been talking about central main power. We're really talking about international energy giant Iberdrola, which in turn owns Avangrid, which in turn owns central main power. And so this is like one component of a big playing field for moving to a more renewable energy future. Iberdrola is mainly in the wind energy business in Spain. And so these big transmission projects, these are all part of – what will be likely more demand for this kind of energy and for big transmission lines to do it. That's one reason why some environmental groups here in Maine are taking a very careful look at the environmental permitting process and trying to say, okay, this could be a precedent. I think that that's one important thing about watching this process in Maine is to see what the environmental regulators come up with in terms of mitigation for the ecosystem values that will be lost if this project goes through 53 miles of what right now is contiguous forest land. Fred Bever covers energy and the environment for Maine Public Radio. Annie Ropeek covers energy and the environment for New Hampshire Public Radio. And they both joined us today. Annie and Fred, thank you both so much for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you, John. Coming up, we'll visit crumbling, abandoned, but historic sites set for demolition. But first, a story of addiction and recovery. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage. 
including the Common Sense Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate change and global warming. Support also comes from Douglas Stone and Mary Schwab Stone through the Smart Family Foundation of New York. When you have anxiety or chronic depression, your mind is constantly going. And I tried opiates and realized that my brain was just quiet for a little bit. It was like a vacation from my brain. That's Abby Holden. She recently recorded an interview with Writers for Recovery and Vermont Public Radio, where she talked about her addiction and her path to recovery as part of their podcast series, My Heart Still Beats. In the interview, she talks with Gary Miller, creative director of Writers for Recovery and co-host of the podcast. We invited Gary into the studio to talk about the series with us, and he started by telling us about the work that Writers for Recovery is doing. You know, we do this amazing uh, seven-minute writing prompt process, and this is how it works. Um, I might say to you, the prompt is, I am the one who, and then I'll say, you have seven minutes, go. And that prompt forces people to just take a leap. And like I said, they really, you know, they surprise themselves. They they go deep. I mean, some of the best pieces we've had were the first ones to come out of people, many of whom, many of the people who are in this workshop don't consider themselves writers, may have done poorly in school, may have not liked writing at all, and they come in because they think it's another way to get at their recovery and forward their recovery, and they just sit down, and it can be really explosive what happens on the page. And we're going to hear a bit of what Abby Holden wrote as part of her time with Writers for Recovery. But we're first going to hear her story. And before we, we do hear that, Gary, maybe you can tell us a little bit, bit about Abby and, and, and what we should know about her going in. I met Abby at a Writers for Recovery workshop in Springfield, Vermont. In a lot of ways, she's kind of a prototypical Vermonter. I mean, she was raised on the third generation family farm. She came from a very stable family. Her mother ran a daycare. Her father was a police officer. But she had some struggles as as a child and ended up after being, you know, prescribed opiates for a for a wisdom tooth, getting addicted. But she's a she's a delightful person. She's she's become a great advocate for speaking out about addiction and recovery in Vermont. And it's been really great to watch her grow. And one of the reasons, you know, one of the reasons that we included her is because she really represents what people kind of think of when they think of Vermont. You know, they think of farm families and they think of, you know, dairy and they think of rural small town people. And, you know, one of the things she said was, you know, one of the reasons I agreed to participate in this is because I know I'm not the stereotypical face of an addict and I really want people to understand that it can happen to anyone. Mm. Let's listen to Abby Holden's story in her own words. It's from the podcast series, My Heart Still Beats, from Writers for Recovery and VPR. I was 17 my senior year of high school, and I had my wisdom teeth taken out. It was really before the opiate crisis had started, so I remember being prescribed like your typical antibiotic and then two different types of narcotics to treat my pain for my wisdom teeth. 
the problem that I was encountering was that every time I took it orally, I would get sick and start vomiting and I didn't want my stitches to rip. And then I think somebody at school just suggested, well, if you just crush it up and snort it, then you won't have to deal with being sick, but it'll still treat your pain. And so once I learned that trick, it was just kind of off and running. <laughs> so like, I was okay with the pill circuit. I felt like, you know, because it was a pharmaceutical, it was safer. I wasn't going to get hurt doing this. Then I found I had this like restlessness and was struggling with abusing other substances and was kind of, I had always told myself over and over again that I won't go near heroin because it's dangerous and I know I'll like it. And actually ended relationships because people were dealing with heroin or had it in their life and then had a very close person in my life try it and I was furious. I was really angry at them. I remember crying and begging them like, please don't do this, da 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 da. And then about two weeks later, I called him and said, you know, maybe you're right. I don't want to be afraid of this anymore. And I tried it and sure enough, I loved it. Abby knew heroin was dangerous and addictive, but she had a system that she thought would keep her safe. I was never a daily user, so a lot of people I, I found didn't consider me an addict because I didn't look like one, but it was clockwork. It was every two weeks, the second I got paid, I knew exactly how much was going to go to drugs. And I usually tried to space out what I bought so that it would get me at least most of the way through every two weeks, but I guess I was unlucky in the fact that I was told very early on by someone I knew who used that, oh, well, if you don't do it more than three days in a row, then you'll never have to deal with feeling a withdrawal. So I, from the very beginning, had a set cycle for myself where I would use for two days, take two days off, use for two days, take two days off. And it made it a lot easier for me to look like on the outside that everything was fine. Everything wasn't fine for Abby. She knew she needed to get away from heroin, but she just couldn't seem to. I would get, you know, a month clean, two months clean, three months clean, and then usually right around three months I would nosedive. And it happened over and over and over again. It was June of 2016, and I was about to celebrate one year clean from heroin. And I just reached this point in my life where I now felt like even when I was clean and I was doing all the right things, that things weren't getting better. And I was just kind of over it. I didn't want to do it anymore. I didn't want to put in the effort and I disclosed to a friend of mine that I was going to buy a bunch of heroin and intentionally OD. And she drove to my house and picked me up and then proceeded to sit with me in the ER for 12 and a half hours until they could get me transport to the Brattleboro Retreat. And how did your dad respond to your hospitalization? Um, he's a police officer. And so where was he and how did you guys interact through your whole active addiction? For the most part, in my active addiction, I didn't interact with my father. I never wanted him to see me and know that I was high. My father's reputation and his integrity was always very important to me. So I tried to just keep the pieces of me that I knew he wouldn't like as far out of his vision as possible. 
it's still obviously a very difficult topic for him to talk about or hear about, but we've come a really long way. And I'm at a point now where if I am really unsafe or I'm feeling really triggered or I'm feeling like I might go do something that I don't want to do, I can walk down to my dad's house and say, dad, I know you don't like it, but this is where I'm at. And he might say, yeah, you're right. I don't like it, but what do you need from me? That is so beyond what I ever thought a parent could do for their child. And I'm incredibly lucky that I have the dad that I do. Abby continued to struggle with her sobriety. The turning point came in February 2018 when her boyfriend died of an overdose at age 29. It was Valentine's Day, and one of my roommate at the time, her boyfriend, was on the way to pick her up from the apartment, and he got there and said, oh, wow, there's something going on over here in Springfield, and, and I don't know what it is, but there's lots of cops, there's lots of ambulances, I'm not quite sure. And I remember just feeling this sinking feeling in my, in, like my heart just dropped out of me, and I just knew. And I literally got in my car, it was February, I didn't even put shoes on drove around to all the places where I thought he could be. I'd gone through my whole Rolodex of possibilities. I drove up the hill to the hospital, and I remember the moment that I saw his mother standing in the parking lot of the hospital. This was a person who was not just my best friend, but he was the person I thought I was going to marry, that I thought I was going to have children with. Losing him, it's uh, been a little over five months now, it completely derailed this whole plan I had in my head for how my life was going to go. I, I felt like my entire life had been just completely destroyed in the matter of an hour and a half morning. There aren't words. But now that I've had time to think about it, this was a very, this was always a very good possibility as an ending whether it be me or him. I've had people tell me, and I've heard people say this idea of if someone gets in involved in drugs, it's their fault, and we don't need to provide support with these people, you know, basically just let them die. I mean, what, what do you say to someone who says that? I say if you don't, if you have never experienced it, you, you don't understand the way that you're your brain flips a switch. And I, I firmly believe that there was almost no way I was not going to get addicted to heroin. I made a choice the first time I tried it. That's absolutely true. But from then on, my brain's doing its own thing. It, it will find any reason to justify or tell me that this is the way to handle things, that doing heroin or doing other drugs or getting drunk was the way to handle things. And I absolutely felt like I had no control over myself. And the perfect example of this is uh, just a couple weeks ago, unfortunately, I found a, an empty heroin bag in my car a couple weeks ago. And I brought it up into the house and I'm looking at my partner and I'm trying to work out like, how long has this been in here? Like, where did this come from? And... I had this urge to open up the bag and see if there's anything left on the inside. And I looked at my partner and I was like, you're going to need to take this from me because I knew that if I put the trust in myself to get rid of it, it wasn't going to happen or there was a possibility that it wasn't going to happen. But 
you have to remind yourself that any situation that could be complicated or put you at risk, it's your responsibility to avoid it. <laughs> I think the hardest thing now is that, uh, is the judgment that comes with being an addict and how everybody assumes once they know it about you that it's just a matter of time before it happens again. And most of these drugs completely rewire your brain. Like I'm never going to feel the same amount of joy that I did the first time I did heroin. That is a scientific chemical fact. My brain cannot do it the same way. So it's reminding myself that I'm still capable of feeling happy and coping with difficult things and dealing with my life and being an adult without the use of drugs. So I have a lot of tattoos and two of my tattoos are serotonin and dopamine. And that's kind of my reminder to myself that almost every drug out there or substance that people use to alter their brain, your brain already makes it. So that's just my reminder to myself that everything I'm looking for is already in my head. That's Abby Holden telling her story on a podcast called My Heart Still Beats. It's a series from VPR, Vermont Public Radio, and Writers for Recovery. Gary Miller joins us. He's creative director of Writers for Recovery. We just heard Abby's story. And one of the things that struck me, Gary, when I was listening to this piece and and the others in the series is that there seems to be a different sort of conversation in America, probably in New England and Vermont as well, about addiction and recovery right now than maybe there was even five or ten years ago. Do you sense that too? I absolutely do, and I think a big part of it is people going public with their stories a big part traditionally of the recovery movement has been that, you know, in groups, 12-step groups and things, it, everyone is anonymous. And I think there are reasons that that happened, perfectly valid reasons. But I also think that it's fantastic that people are going public. Addiction is an incredibly isolating disease. But once we realize that, you know, it's not just the stereotypical vision of an addict, you know, on a street corner. It's our mother, it's our sister, it's our brother, it's us, it's our neighbor. And then we begin to understand and show compassion toward people with substance use disorder. And that's when we can begin to treat it. And to me, it's incredibly heartening, this whole change in conversation and the dynamic of it, that now we're willing to be supportive of people with substance use disorder, that it's not all about punishment and shame. And I think, you know, this this whole public story sharing has really helped to reduce stigma, which is, is really, I think, what's standing in the way of full treatment for this epidemic that it deserves. One of the really remarkable things about the, the series is that we get to hear people telling their stories in their own words, but also we get to hear the the writing that they do as part of this this workshop. And we're going to hear now some of Abby's poetry. Maybe before we do, Gary, could you tell us a little bit about what we're going to hear? In our workshop, we often give two prompts. One is a morning in the midst of my addiction, and the second one is a morning now. And for each of those prompts, people write for seven minutes. And so Abby combined those two seven-minute prompts into a single poem I was just stunned when I heard it the first time. I mean, the depth of 
emotion and insight um, and a real story that could come out in, you know, essentially 14 minutes of total writing time from Abby. She's incredibly talented and, um, and I love this piece. Let's listen. Mornings. Then. This tent is crazy hot. I know it is not even six, but the way the sunrise hits this beach, it only takes about 11 seconds before it feels 115 degrees in here. I cannot breathe through my nose. My head pounds. I have no idea how you're still sleeping. Then I remember it's barely been two hours since we went to sleep. More, my brain asks sweetly, a toddler with puppy dog eyes who wants another piece of cake. I know it will be your first thought. I start counting the money, pace our riverside beach, smoke a cigarette, swim, count the money again. Begin planning in my head, this much for gas, this much for smokes, this much for more. If we don't drive around when it's gone, forget the gas and get even more. More? It asks again hungrily. How are you still sleeping? It is a wonder I ever rest these days when I'm so filled with all this want. Another cigarette before I'm gently waking you. My desire is a chant now. More, more, more. One is too many. A thousand is never enough. Now, my eastward-facing bedroom window has blanketed me in early morning light. I watch the feathers from my dream catchers sway and dance in the sun. A sweet dog with floppy ears gives me a look that says, Mom, do we have to? No, baby, not just yet. For now, we will stay here, lay in the yellow light, smoke a cigarette, and think about how, when I'm ready to move, I'll make coffee and watch the dog find all the new smells in the yard, and consider the way that I'm not addiction-free, but I've chosen the lesser evils. Think about how now my nights are filled with painting, writing, and creating things, rather than wasted hours and money lost, and friends I'll never get to soak in the light with again. That's Abby Holden uh, reading from the Writers for Recovery program and this special series, My Heart Still Beats, from Vermont Public Radio and Writers for Recovery. Gary Miller joins us. How's Abby doing now? Abby's doing great. She's in college. I actually saw her. We did a celebration and community forum for the podcast series, and she was on the panel. She's so eloquent. She's so insightful. And she's really, it's just exciting, as it is with anyone I see, you know, who's who's turning their life around. It's just thrilling to watch her go. And I, I predict great things for Abby. Gary Miller is creative director of Writers for Recovery, co-host of My Heart Still Beats, a new series by Writers for Recovery and Vermont Public Radio. You can find it wherever you get your podcasts. Gary, thank you so much for bringing us these stories, and thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much. It was great to talk to you. The series was produced by Gary, along with Bess O'Brien and editor Erica Heilman. The music is by Brian Clark. VPR's managing editor for podcasts is Angela Evansy. 
and it's all made possible by the VPR Innovation Fund. Coming up, we'll visit two communities working to move forward while honoring their pasts. It's next. Next is made possible in part by our founding supporters who believe in the power of collaborative news coverage, including the John Merck Fund, supporting the New England News Collaborative and its coverage of climate and clean energy. Support also comes from the Melville Charitable Trust. Let's end our show with two stories about buildings and what they can tell us about our past and our future. You can find two grand old hotels on Main Street in Willimantic, a small mill town in eastern Connecticut. They hosted movers and shakers from New York and Boston during the golden age of train travel. The hotels, though, fell into disrepair when travelers took to the highways. Cheap rooms, cheap heroin, and social services drew addicts, sex workers, and the unemployed. WSHU's Cassandra Basler reports on a plan to demolish these buildings and how it might force the town to reconcile its grand history and its troubled recent past. Historic Willimantic has all the markers of an up-and-coming neighborhood. A craft brewery, a high-end coffee shop, even a food co-op. But Susan Johnson says North Main Street still struggles with homelessness, unemployment, and empty storefronts. Walk on this side of the street because there's a crumbling building over there. Johnson is a state representative from Willimantic. She's also a member of the Victorian Neighborhood Association. So it's a bit surprising that she wrote legislation that would let owners demolish historic properties. These vacant buildings, the Nathan Hale Hotel and the infamous Hotel Hooker. I don't know what anybody would try to preserve here. We stand in a cinder block entryway to the Hotel Hooker that covers the yellow brick building and a terrazzo floor. The Hartford Current and CBS 60 Minutes immortalized the hotel turned flop house in a series called Heroin Town about 15 years ago. We had a place here for people with addictions. We have been dealing with addictive uh, problems for years and years and years. So we knew about that, and the article did nothing but help ruin the town. Johnson says her bill would demolish the hotel's troubled legacy and make way for market rate housing. Resident Jean Dismay doesn't like that plan. I would like mixed housing better than a flop house, but that's part of our history. To me, that's part of the history of the town, and it's okay to say, yeah, look what happened. Dismay gathered more than 500 signatures to petition the state to keep the buildings. She got preservationists to inspect the hotels and see if they can be rehabbed. We need to think about what good development looks like. And good development, in my mind, includes saving old buildings and integrating them into the new. Willimantic was the center of the textile industry. That's one reason why Hotel Hooker was the first in the region to have electricity in the 1880s. But it looked run down by the 1920s, so the townspeople funded a new hotel next door. Wyndham Town historian Jamie Eaves says they built the Nathan Hale Hotel as a show-off building. When you do that, you put neat things into it. So you make a lobby with a polished granite floor. Um, They had a dining room that had a skylight. It stuck out the back of the buildings. Eve says the Hale Building was last used as a dormitory and office by Eastern Connecticut State University. The Hotel Hooker closed to low-income residents nine years ago. They are relics of a time uh, in the past. 
I think it would be really nice if Willimantic had one, at least one of its grand old railroad hotels left in existence, but I don't know if that's possible or not. Town manager Jim Rivers envisions one future for the buildings. He points to a drawing of the proposed apartment complex where the hotels now stand. It includes a parking garage that just got more than $6 million in state funding. It would be a tremendous uh, boost to our economy here. The image of the culture uh, over the last 30 or 40 years has not been that great. And we have finally, I think, gotten past that. But we, you know, we had a, a reputation of being a rough town. And the center of that reputation was the Hooker Building. The town also has money troubles. It's home to the region's drug treatment and recovery centers, hospitals and homeless shelters, properties exempt from taxes. Rivers says the high tax rate and low rents have scared away developers before. We finally have somebody that wants to do something with that site and other sites in the area to get the scale that he needs to make the numbers work, and it really comes down to the economics. Rivers worries the apartment developer will walk if the state says he has to repurpose the buildings. The State Historic Preservation Council recently voted to let the Attorney General decide the fate of the hotels and possibly Main Street. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cassandra Basler in Connecticut. In 1953, New England native Buckminster Fuller brought a radical idea to life. The futurist and famed architect built one of the first spherical buildings in the U.S., a geodesic dome. Now the oldest surviving wood-framed dome in the seaside village of Woods Hole has the community up in arms about how to preserve it. Here's WBUR's Cristela Guerra. I'm walking with developer Mark Bogosian inside what's left of Buckminster Fuller's geodesic dome. It feels like we're inside a giant honeycomb, and it's falling apart. Several water main breaks have caused mold and decay. The roof's ripped open, revealing a wooden skeleton. Piles of garbage litter the floor. Graffiti covers the walls. We're going to be walking over to the kitchen wing. I'd ask you to be careful. All this is rotten out. The local landmark has been abandoned for nearly two decades. But before that, it was an upscale restaurant, the kind of place where families took Mother's Day photos and couples married their sweethearts. The dome also holds architectural history. It marks one of Buckminster Fuller's earliest attempts at what would become his greatest architectural invention, the geodesic dome. In the middle of the 20th century, constructing a spherical building was a radical new idea. When Bogosian bought the land three years ago, he instantly saw potential. And when I see a site that is in such a good location here in Woods Hole, but is in such dire disrepair, and seeing that there was some great opportunity not only to provide an incredible amount of work for people that live and work in the community, but something that I can be proud of, that for generations I can show my children this is what I've accomplished, was something that was extremely important to me. Bogosian and his partner bought the five-acre property for nearly $3 million. He says they're working with the state's historical commission to develop a plan for the dome. Around it, he plans to build a luxury retirement community with affordable housing rentals close by. But his project is a point of contention. I'm worried about the timeline for this. I'm worried that he's going to get going and never finish. Woods Hole resident Nicole Goldman and a committee of designers and architects don't believe Bogosian has an adequate restoration plan. Goldman's committee initially talked with Bogosian about leasing the dome or buying a portion of the property the dome sits on to turn it into an art center. But negotiations fell apart. One of Bogosian's attorneys said Goldman wanted too much control over the preservation efforts. 
Goldman now feels the developer never intended to make a deal. Well, you know, Falmouth has a motto. Isn't Falmouth nice? I don't see how this project is fitting that motto. So, yeah, they're doing their very best to make me feel really soured about the town and about the process and about my village. At a town planning meeting, the tension is obvious when Goldman's husband Jonathan walks out after alleging they'd been shut out of the process. But you're not respecting what I'm trying to say here. Yes, I am. How is that? Oh, can you explain that to me? Yes, I can. I'm down. listening. Please sit down. No, please, just I mean, answer my question. I didn't ask for a debate. The thing that hurts me about what's going on in this town is that it's pitting friends against friends. And it's actually, there are families that are have people on both sides. And it is causing such friction in something that shouldn't necessarily have friction. Becky Connors is the general manager at the Sands of Time, an inn and harbor house her family built and has owned since the 60s. She grew up here, a stone's throw away. She put herself through college, working in Fuller's Dome. Well, it was thriving. The Dome was a really fancy place to come out for dinner. It was like a special treat, a luxury kind of thing. So when I worked here, we had bus tours every morning. We'd get here about 6, and there'd be a whole bus of people coming in, um, staying here. And it was, you know, a pretty fancy place. Um, And it's really sad to see how far it's fallen. Connors prefers a park but says at least the property will no longer be an eyesore and supports Bogosian's development. He hopes to begin construction this year. We understand that this is a key part of this development, but it's not the only part of the development, that there's a lot more here. So as much as this dome will be a real jewel of the development, I think so is having affordable housing that people are going to be able to live and walk down to Woods Hole where there's so many jobs available. Fuller once said, We are all astronauts on a little spaceship called Earth. Everything he created, including the geodesic dome, was meant to bring people closer, to live simpler. But at Woods Hole, the dome currently stands as a marker of a big divide. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Cristela Guerra. You can find pictures of these buildings on our website, nextnewengland.org. You can also find our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for Next New England. You can always give us a rating or review on iTunes, too. Thank you. You can also follow Next on Facebook and Twitter at Next New England. Our program is produced by Lily Tyson. Our digital producer is Carlos Mejia. And our executive producer is Katie Filarski. We had help this week from Kion Wolf, Bob Kinzel, Angela Evansy, Chris Albertine, Lucy Susek, and Andrew Perella. Our music is by Todd Merrill and Goodnight Blue Moon. The New England News Collaborative is powered by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, Connecticut Public Radio, Vermont Public Radio, New Hampshire Public Radio, Maine Public Radio, New England Public Radio, WBUR, WSHU, and The Public Radio.